Hello, you are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Our Reading Life in partnership with our friends from BiblioGuides. Hi, I'm Diane Pendergraft here with Sarah Masaryk, and we have Tanya Arnold and Sarah Kim with us today so that we can, wait for it, talk about books. Are we talking about books? I thought that was the plan. I thought we had a different podcast. Uh I'm not sure what it is, though. Yeah, so (laughs) I guess we'll talk about books. We know something about books. So, (laughs) well, friends, welcome back to another episode of Our Reading Life. I think last month I said that it was our eighth episode, and then I went back and counted, and it was actually our ninth. So that would make this one our tenth episode of this. Yeah, this little experiment that we... Yeah, we, we we thought we would try something on for size, and by golly, it's it's become a thing for us. So, Tanya and Sarah, welcome. So glad to be able to see you like this and chat with you. Today, we're going to start with Tanya, because you've got unfinished business, Tanya. You have things you want to say that you didn't get to say last <laughs> month. So, tell us, what have you been reading? Well, that is kind of funny, because last month, I did have a lot more I wanted to talk about but didn't feel like we could have a three-hour episode. (laughs) So I was like kind of holding back. (laughs) And then this month we did To Say Nothing of the Dog for our book club. Mm -hmm. And so that was a good portion of my reading, which I loved that book. So I, you know, encourage people to go listen to that because that was such a delightful, life-giving. Yeah, yeah, it was just really fun. Mm -hmm. But then some of the other books that I've been reading this month, I kind of feel like weren't necessarily like podcast worthy. I was reading some like educational books and I've had, I'm sure you guys have heard of it, but I've had so many people recommend to me for probably the last five years to read Hold On to Your Kids by Gordon Newfeld. I have mm-hmm. not heard of that. No. Wait, what? Yeah. Sarah, have you heard of it? Is that by the author that Marlene recommends the videos? Yeah. Okay. That's the only thing I've heard about him though. Interesting. <laughs> so he has a book called Hold on to your kids, why parents need to matter more than peers. And he did a video that Marlene Peterson shares in The Well-Educated Heart. And the video is so very thought-provoking mm-hmm. about how we began to be peer-oriented, kind of starting in the 50s and 60s, and what that has kind of done to society and how how that is causing problems to not have our children oriented to the parent versus their peers. So anyway, I, I'm starting it and I'm really excited about reading that because I had a a friend in person who said, I will actually bring you the book if you will read it. (laughs) So I said, okay, okay, I'm going to actually prioritize this one. But I've had people recommend it to me for about five years. So a lot of my reading has been kind of in preparation for mother's evenings and kind of topics that are educational, all really beautiful, great, meaty stuff. But as far as just other types of fiction or literature or things for my kids that I've been reading, there hasn't been as much this month. It's just been with the holidays and everything kind of a crazy month. So I want to share something from last month and then um, a little something from this month. So last month, um, I read by Lloyd Alexander, The Iron Rink. And I read it because Sarah had, Sarah Mazarek had read it and reviewed it and we were adding it to BiblioGuides. And I have not actually read Lloyd Alexander before. So I'm familiar with... I know. <laughs> I know. So I, in the 80s, maybe, like, I don't remember when the Black Cauldron cartoon came out. Oh, yeah. No, it's terrible. Okay. Well, sh- <laughs> <laughs> <Just a minute. laughs> 
when that movie came out, I had not heard of the book before. And there was also a video game. And computers were still like pretty new then. And I, my dad had gotten a computer. So I don't know when this was exactly. And there was a game you could play, but it was, I'm pretty sure it's the one where like you had to type the instructions. So you had to say like, walk towards the castle. <laughs> and anyway, this is like when we okay, played so Oregon I'm, Trail. <laughs> so I'm like dating myself here. Right. But I loved the character of Gurgi. I wasn't really a gamer or anything, but I remember that I liked it because of the mythology of the story. Right. Right. So you have this princess and there's a castle and there's this funny Gurgi character. And <laughs> but I never read the books. So you had read and recommended the Iron Ring. And I thought, well, I have that on my shelf. So I'll go ahead and read that. Mm. So I loved it. Yay. So I was holding my much. breath. Like, are we waiting to see? Yeah, yes. Because I can't imagine a world in which you didn't love it. But, you know, sometimes things happen. Sometimes you're just so- wrong. I know, right? Or you're wrong. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> so in it, you have this main character that's 13, 14 years old, somewhere in there. And he's the king of this of this land. And it's kind of set with Indian type themes, yeah. as in the country of India. It's fictional, and- but it feels like India. Mm-hmm. Well, and because a lot of the philosophy comes through, so you Absolutely. have the, there's the caste system is presented, mm-hmm. and the idea of honor and mm-hmm. dharma yeah. is is presented, and a lot of it I wasn't really sure where Lloyd Alexander was going to take this character or right. what I just didn't know where the story was going to go, mm-hmm. and it it reminds me a little bit like Kipling, yeah. right, where he keeps because. I've read a lot of Alexander, and he writes in all these different ethnic genres. And you keep thinking, wait, where? Wh- what do you think? Where are we going on this journey? But anyway, I, I interrupted. I'm sorry. But yeah, go- well, and what are you trying to say? Because yeah. I, the whole idea of like hospitality and what you have to do if someone does X, Y, Z, uh-huh. or like the defense of honor. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't really like the idea of some of the things that happened in like the early revolutionary period where we had duels we have to have a duel and and actually to the death because someone offended us right so so i so you have these ideas in here and i'm thinking what what does he think what is he going to present here (laughs) and and you've got these moral dilemmas and it's a little bit the hobbit yes it is Mm -hmm. do you think so it's a little bit the hobbit because you have this quest and then you have these unlikely characters that come throughout the journey that help him on his journey right and then you have this kind of epic ending mm-hmm. and and then you have this like when it all comes together at the end mm-hmm. it's I don't even want to say anything about it but it was so thought-provoking and so profound mm-hmm. and really makes you just stop and think for a while about how everything came together and what it all means it's, it's genius like philosophy it, it is. is so yes yes I just couldn't believe it. I'm so glad this was your first experience with Lloyd Alexander, because almost everybody enters through the Chronicles of Prydain. And that if you if that doesn't land for you, you might never come back to Alexander thinking that that's what he's always going to be like. But like Kipling, he's so fascinating in that every story is set in a completely different place and has that very, very authentic flavor of that place, meaning both the philosophy, the style, the characterization, all of it is kind of true to the place in which he sets it. And I think when you look at like the progression of the of the fantasy story, you know, you really have Tolkien as the leader or the grandfather of it all. 
But then Alexander was, many people have called him the American Tolkien. Oh, really? And then I think Tolkien Drakt picked up in that same tradition, that same vein. And so it's like every generation or three quarters of a generation, we get another brilliant, fantastical storyteller who's not creating a weird world just Mm -hmm. to do it, you know, but rather has these incredibly human stories to tell, but wants to tell them in a sort of transcendent way. Mm-hmm. And the story was so flavorful. Mm-hmm. There was just mm-hmm. so much to the mythology of the land, to the way the dynamic mm-hmm. of the different people groups, to the importance of each of the of the peoples and what they brought to the story and then there right. were so many different kind of storylines that were paralleling each other mm-hmm. i i was i couldn't put it down i was just completely wowed and i think if you had a child that loved fantasy it's a hero tale ah oh, totally it and it's right so it's the hero's journey mm-hmm. it's completely epic mm-hmm. it, it's just everything if you if you read the hobbit and you loved it this is a great place to go amen yep no if you love star wars it's a great place to go or star trek or Star Trek. <laughs> I was going to ask, the only book of his that I've read was The Remarkable Journey of Prince Chen. Mm. Have any of you read that one in China? I think it's a simpler story, but it also sounds like it has some similarities to this one. Definitely, I think, for a, a maybe lower reading level, and the story yes. is a bit, I think, simpler. Yeah. But it's also a journey story, son of a king, trying mm-hmm. to figure out his place and... What his obligations are. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't intend to leave the kingdom and travel all around and meet interesting characters. And (laughs) yeah, (laughs) it's a good one too. I liked that one. And I really, that one also reminds me of Time Cat. Because Time Cat is about a boy who has a cat who has nine lives. But each life is a life, like a different time and place life. And I think... The, I, I have this feeling that the remarkable journey of Prince Chen started in Time Cat and then kind of grew into its own fuller story. Oh, interesting. I did have Quanu read Time Cat when we were studying ancient Egypt because I know that was one of the places that he sort yeah, of stopped. Yeah, I think another yeah. place might have been another, like the contemporary time period we were studying. So I was like, oh, this is perfect. You read this one. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Did he like yeah. it? Yeah. And he also, he really loved the Chronicles of Perdane also. I yeah. want to read that one. I just haven't had a chance yet. They, I mean, they are yeah, fun, but they're an acquired taste. Yeah. I bought Time Cat because I think that sounds really fascinating. So mm-hmm. I'm excited to do that one. We have to then figure out in Time Cat because there's a chapter in its ancient China. And I, I feel like that one is the seed of one of his other stories. But maybe not. Maybe I just have such a weak understanding of Chinese mythology and Chinese history that it's, it's a totally different thing. It could be a totally different thing. But listen to this conversation. All these different places that Lloyd Alexander goes. And his writing, right, can we all agree, his writing is truly excellent. Like, high caliber writing, his phrases are good, His he has lots of flavor to his words, uses excellent vocab. Just really good structure, I think. Yeah, so I'm really excited, too, because a few years ago, we were working on a series called Covenant Books. And they were published by the Jewish Publication Society of America. Oh. So they would be similar to... Landmark books, right? Yeah, except that they were all people of Jewish heritage. Right. So it would be more like American background who were all 
Catholic. like of the Catholic faith. Right. Yeah. And Lloyd Alexander wrote two books, two biographies I know. for us. I can't I, find right? them. I can't find them. I've gone looking know, for them. They're rare. so rare. <laughs> I'm not even sure if they're on Internet Archive, but I'm really interested into looking more into those because that is also just, again, a completely different genre for him. Yeah, there's some very interesting authors in that series. I mean, I know you and I talked about this like six months ago. So then I went looking for those and I bought like maybe six or eight of them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I if they're in that landmark price point between 10 and $15, I'm likely to grab them. If they're more than that, I'm just going to have to wait and yeah. see. And so I grabbed the ones that were more gettable, but they have some very interesting authors who who we know from other places as well, just like Landmark or American Background or something like yeah. that. So maybe some small publisher could take a look and see if any of those <laughs> are available to bring back into print. Yay. <laughs> okay. So definitely, I think we are going to explore Lloyd Alexander a little bit more. And I think actually, I am going to try reading The Remarkable Journey of Prince Jen because mm-hmm. They might be two books that if you like this one, go right to the next one. That'd be great to know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So then I just wanted to share, um, I'm reading a book for a project that we're working on that we're going to be sharing more information, but I'm reading a book called Person and Jim, the Possum by Joseph Wharton Lippincott. So I'm going to show you guys the cover, but we can put it in the show notes or something. Oh yeah. Gotcha. So Lippincott was an author, but he was also of the family of the publishing company, J.B. Lippincott. Right. So I think he was the president at some point of mm. this publishing company. So he was also a naturalist. So this particular book I've had on my shelf for years. I've heard he's a wonderful storyteller naturalist. So I thought I would read the book. It first came out in 1924. And then a revised edition came out like in the 40s or 50s. And the revised edition, they went from photography in the 20s. This is interesting. Photography in the 20s to illustrations by George F. Mason mm-hmm. with this new edition. And George F. Mason was just known as also a really good artist of the natural world. Mm-hmm. So the illustrations are really lovely. And I don't know if the text was changed that much or it was mostly the pictures. So I'm not sure. I'm going to have to evaluate that. But you have this story about a possum who's living in this area and there's all of these farmers and they're mostly raising chickens. So you can imagine a possum in the area gets blamed for everything (laughs) and every death. And he's just kind of telling the story of how smart this possum is and how he's evaded being captured Mm. and how he continues to do so. And so there's dogs that are characters that do the chasing. And at first I I read the first chapter and I thought, Oh, I don't know. But the more I get into it, the funnier that I think it is. And I've never read Rascal. So I know that Diane mm-hmm. has read Rascal. Oh, it's one of her favorites. I'm wondering if it's comparative to that or if Rascal is told from like the perspective of the raccoon or if it's just about the raccoon or if it's if it's funny. Like what? How would I get a good feel for that, Diane? No, this is told by the boy who raises the raccoon. And so it's just stories about how they hang out together. And of course, with a wild pet like that, mishaps and (laughs) and having to eventually take him out and let him go. Is it maybe more like The Incredible Journey, which is told from the perspective of the two dogs and the cat? So like, for example, here's just a paragraph to get a feel for it. So the possum is out in the woods and there's a dog named Banjo. Banjo came swiftly along the path until directly opposite Jim. Remember that Jim is the possum. Mm -hmm. Whereupon his keen nose at once caught the possum scent in the trail, and he slowed down to a walk in order to investigate. His sniffing told him that the possum was old Persimmon Jim, and that the trail led from the path towards the tree. 
the hound stood there for a few moments, undecided what to do. It was fun to chase a possum. But then the trail always led up a tree or into a hole where he could not follow. And without Ed Johnson to aid him, there was no sport in it for him. Therefore, the idea gave him no thrill, and he finally trotted away, leaving the path again clear for Jim, who understood, and immediately returned to resume his journey. <laughs> that sounds like the incredible journey. If you, don't you think, Diane? It, yeah, possibly. I just love it. Basically, you've got this possum, and he's not exactly humanized, but you recognize that he is thinking about various things, and he knows whether he's safe or what he ought to do. And you've got the dog, and you're kind of sensing what the dog is thinking or feeling. Or like it goes on, a little farther on, a black cat appeared like a shadow sneaking towards him. But Jim, recognizing her, kept right on. And she, well knowing that nothing was to be gained by quarreling with him, leaped out of his way. It was Sam Collins' cat. So it just goes on and there's just kind of these shenanigans. And I'm, a, I'm just like three or four chapters in. At one point, one of the farmers is looking for him. And the whole time, Person and Jim has been sleeping in the barn. But the farmer has no idea. He walks over wet cement. There's a house being built. And all the animals of the woods are kind of trying to figure out what this house is. And they're staying away. But he goes on it. And he walks on the soft cement. And his tracks are left there. (laughs) But he doesn't know that. Classic. And then, you know, they're talking about how the homeowner sees it. The contractor says, hey, we can replace that. And the homeowner says, no. No, that's a record of what happened here. Mm -hmm. And and he kind of talks about how, like, you know, millions of years ago, we had animals that did various things. And now we have fossils. And that's how we keep a record of these things. And so now it must stay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just funny and quirky. And it was written for, like, 8 to 12-year-olds. And I'm not actually very familiar with possums. I don't even know if I've, like, seen one in real life, like, other than, like, at a zoo or something. <laughs> so it's just a, it's just been a fun, quirky animal nature story that I think a lot of kids would really really appreciate. The 1924 edition is in print. No Fear Schoolhouse. Interesting. Has it back in print. And it's the 1924 edition, which again, I don't know how different the story is. I'll do a little comparing, but it has the photography rather than the illustrations, which I think is fine. So Michelle Howard and I are working on a project together right now. And when I spoke with her, one of the things we talked about was how that golden age of children's literature made it um, a strong emphasis on using high-quality art for all nature books and for all science books. It was not enough to use photography. It had to be art because art stimulates the learning in a more dynamic way than a photograph does. So I find it interesting that what you're saying with this book is that it started in the 1920s as photography, but as it came into the golden age of children's literature, it was revised with art. I think that's really cool. Yeah, me too. And the photography is really interesting. I think it's the author's real story of probably interactions with the possum. But to go to the art was stunning. Upgrade. (laughs) I want to make a comment about the photographs, maybe argue a little bit. Because if you look at books like when Gene Stratton Porter was learning photography in the late 1800s, early 1900s, back when you, you know, very first could do it, that was amazing in itself. For sure. To be able to put an actual photograph of a bird or a moth or something in a book, that was impressive in itself. And also imagination stimulating because people had never seen that before. 
I mean, yeah. you might have photographs right. in really old books of a building or something like that, but wildlife right. and that kind of thing, that was also impressive. So I, I get what you're saying about it having to be artwork rather than photography, but photography is art. And it was a brand new art at that time in 1924. That would have been pretty amazing still to have a book with photographs in it. Probably was expensive and, and pretty exclusive. And it was probably, the photos were probably printed on different paper because usually those plates came in on a... Shiny ones. Shiny, yeah. yeah. So that would, all, it would definitely have made it more expensive to do it that way. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, right? Because these mediums, there is no medium that's inherently bad. And there's no medium that's inherently excellent. You can have really ugly drawn illustration and mm -hmm. you can have really stunning photos. Um, same with video. I mean, not that we want to replace books with video, but I'm just saying that all the mediums that continue to evolve God's creative genius being made manifest through man's curiosity and hard work and talent, it, it, all of it serves a purpose. It's just interesting that in a particular period of time, they felt that for children, that there was a gold standard and that the gold standard was to commission an excellent illustrator versus going out and getting the best possible photos or something like that. And those have stood the test of time longer, I think, for us now, looking back at those books, mm -hmm. the artwork is still beautiful. The photos from that time, we think, eh, they're black and white, they're not that great. Like we can get so much better on my iPhone right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? So it does, doesn't have that same lasting quality. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, so those are the two books that I really wanted to share. Well, thanks a lot for giving me more things I need yeah. to buy. That sounds great. <laughs> I know, right? More things to <laughs> read. Sound, they sound so fun though. <laughs> I love, I'm a sucker for animal books. I love animal books. <laughs> me too. I feel like that's probably one of my biggest sections of my library is nature yes. stories. I I love them. And I think I have primarily focused on a lot of my picture books or like shorter readers. Mm -hmm. And so coming into more full length stories that are about animals is always fun to do. Yeah, I agree. And I, I just have to say, this is why I love The Incredible Journey is because it has that those same kind of dynamics in it. And Sarah, you're nodding. You agree with Incredible Journey? Yeah, I love that story. And growing up in Canada has that connection to, of course, right. but yeah, <laughs> really good one. It's so great. <laughs> Yay. Okay, so that is pretty much what I have read for this month, other than a few, like I said, other educational type books. But Sarah, why don't you tell us what you've been reading or what okay. you've been preparing for? Well, Actually, what something that you said reminded me of a pretty lengthy picture book that I read that I wasn't even going to talk about, but I'm going to mention it. <laughs> yeah, um, oh, good. <laughs> Deanna on our team read this and mentioned it to us, and I was able to get a copy through Interlibrary Loan. So it's a picture book biography of Randolph Caldecott. Mm. So it's Randolph Caldecott, the man who could not stop drawing. And it's, a like I said, a lengthy picture book biography of his. But what sparked the memory for me of this story was when Tanya was showing that illustration of the dog leaning up against the tree, and it felt like there was action happening yes. in that illustration. Yes. And he was the kind of first illustrator that made the action come to life. Mm. So like the Caldecott metal has that force that's like in full motion yeah. on the actual metal. And that was one of his illustrations that he had done and it was just a fascinating life story 
starts when he was 15 in 1861 in England. And he starts out as like a bank clerk, but he really wants to draw and illustrate. And so he ends up moving to um, London and some other places. And, you know, he's kind of this upbeat, kind of gregarious guy, but he also has kind of this some kind of illness. I can't remember exactly what it was. Like he's kind of frail, um, mm. but he's also just full of life. Mm. And um, he just makes a way for himself. And the number of other like well-known people that are brought up in this story kind of just like blows your mind. <laughs> it's like when you read older books and you're like, how do all these famous people know yeah, each other? Yeah, how did they all converge? Like, all the famous people today know each other? <laughs> 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 so, you know, like, one of his illustrations hung in Beatrice Potter's home, like her father bought it for her and inspired her love of illustration. And he got his job illustrating um, children's books because the um, illustrator, Walter Crane, I don't know if you're familiar with him, Mm -hmm. um, he's a pretty well-known illustrator himself, but he decided he was tired of the job and handed it off, handed it off to Randolph Caldecott. (laughs) And there's just, you know, Kate Greenaway and... George Eliot. <laughs> wow. um, they met like at a country home. Of course they did. It was all these stories, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> it, was, it was very fun that way. Um, and and just a really interesting life story. So I, I do recommend that one. And I don't think it's on Internet Archive, no. But I mean, it was printed recently in, let's see. Well, not that recently. 2013. Sarah, can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. Deanna did add that to mm-hmm. BiblioGuides. And we have a way where we can um, tag either people or books that are referenced or mentioned. Mm-hmm. In I the added book. all those so, tags. <laughs> okay, so you put Hilda van Stockham. Yes, wow. she is quoted at the end of the book. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly what she had to say. She talks about him. Um, I think his influence on her. Oh. And the other person that was quoted at the end of the book was, um, look here, maybe it was Lewis Carroll. I know he, no, he was brought up earlier and Mark Twain. He heard Mark Twain speak Oh my like when he was visiting, he was like, he was a really fun guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I can't remember who, oh, it was Maurice Sendak. Oh, so Maurice Sendak and Hilda Van Stockham were quoted at the end of the book about his influence on them. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Those two don't seem like they would hang together. (laughs) (laughs) Van Stockham and Sendak. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that is so um, cool. Mhm. Yeah, so it was a really good story and if you're if you like the Caldecott metal books or just want to read a good biography, I recommend that one. And we call him the father of the modern picture mm-hmm. book. Mhm. And is that because he was one of the first ones to really do a more fully illustrated picture book? Like that hadn't really been done because there were illustrations that were happening mm-hmm. in books, but not more, in that were way. They were they more, more plates rather than th- like a through current? Yeah, it's a good question. I think like he he was illustrating also um, Washington Irving stories. Mm. And so I think there was illustration, but he started like this whole children's series. They did like I think mm-hmm. Mother Goose and like other wow. stories. And like I said, he really put the action into the illustrations um, and they became kind of famous and they were printed in all various places and like I said Beatrix Potter bought one I was gonna say it's, it makes sense when you think of Beatrix Potter's <laughs> yeah. illustration and have you guys seen mm-hmm. the Miss Potter movie no I haven't seen the movie but I saw Mm-mm. it's so good. when I was in London I saw uh, an exhibit at Armit Museum mm. the whole bottom floor was like all of her drawings oh, wow oh wow yeah 
It was really cool. I highly recommend the movie. It, it It is, does not, you know, you always worry that they're going to darken your idea of somebody, but it's, it is, it's brilliantly well done. I think it's Renee Zwelliger. Mm-hmm. It is such a compelling film, but one of the things I love about it is constantly her animals were animating around her. They make full license of the way that her creative imagination was working, that she'd be looking at a pot of tea and she would see Peter Rabbit running across the pot of tea. So it wasn't that she saw, she never saw her animals as static. She always saw them as fluid. And so it makes sense that she would be an inheritor of Caldecott's Mm -hmm. style and emphasis. Yeah. Yeah. He also has a really kind of tragic ending to his life. I don't know if you guys were aware of this. He married later in life and he and his wife traveled to America and they planned to tour from Florida all the way to California. And they had like a rough crossing and he got sick and they only made it to Florida and he passed away. Oh, wow. In America. Wow. Yeah. That is very sad. Yeah. So like I said, he was kind of frail. So he had like kind of this history of mm-hmm. illnesses and things, but yeah. Oh, wow. I was never really totally aware of picture book biographies until I started hanging out with you girls and <laughs> you guys are always talking about them. And I began to understand that they're really a, a subgenre unto themselves And I love that in the past when we've talked, we've talked about how they're a wonderful way in to a particular subject that you can get to know more about this person or that person and then decide, do you really want to spend more time with that person, either reading a a more full length biography or something that they've Mm -hmm. written. So even for the mamas listening right now, it's really great to go check out picture book biographies and head over to BiblioGuides where you can search for them. I, because of all of you talking about Wanda Gog, I just got yesterday the book that I think BiblioGuides promoted recently, The Girl Who Loved to Draw. I love that mm-hmm. one. I It's fascinating to learn about her story. And I think sometimes that's the other thing that's awesome about a picture book biography is sometimes we don't have a lot of information about various right. people. Sometimes it is limited information. Right. And you can get a pretty good picture with what we do have in a 32 page yes. book with beautiful illustrations. And it brings that person and their story to life in a really meaningful yes. way. Like I, just, <laughs> I love them so much. And this one is 64 pages with lengthy text. Nice. So it's not one you would read to your preschooler. It's one, you know, an elementary student could, you could read aloud to them or just enjoy it yourself. <laughs> Go pick it up. Get it from the library. It's a great one for mother culture, ladies. You could do this during nap time. You could make yourself a cup of tea and enjoy walking into this world. So what else are you reading, Sarah? So I read uh, To Say Nothing of the Dog while I listened to the audiobook. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't join the podcast, but I did want to read along and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was quite an adventure. And And you you took issue Um, with one of our omissions. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> you, um, see, you have the opportunity to make it right. <laughs> all I can say is it's because our brains don't all work the same and they don't work like yours. And so we don't think to share the things that you think about. <laughs> the, yeah, the things that you would think to share. Well, there's no way we covered everything anyway. Right. <laughs> it's true. That was a chaotic book club, much like the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I was just hoping, I kept listening, hoping that you would mention mention, uh, Professor Pettick because he was one of my favorite characters. (laughs) And when you were talking about like history and the influence of individual characters and their actions, 
it, that was his whole point. He was he was in a feud with another professor over what was influencing history, and <laughs> he was always saying it's character, it's character, it's irony, right? <laughs> so. See, this is what I love about that book, though. That never even resonated with me. And I've read the book multiple times. And yet when you said it, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. This book, I feel like you could mine it for a really long time and keep finding really, really fun, smart treasures in it. A lot of references, a lot of layers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I I definitely, as I was reading it, felt like, oh, I'm not getting a lot of things. Right. I'm not getting a lot. But what I did get was very enjoyable and fun. <laughs> yeah. I kind of felt like if you want to know how much you don't know, read that book because it will make it, you very aware of your ignorance. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> and then the other book I'm reading now that I, I'm about a little more than halfway through the audiobook for, well, it's a detective story, The Cuckoo's Calling mm-hmm. by Robert Galbraith. It's the first Cormoran Strike novel by, um, so Robert Galbraith is the pseudonym for J.K. Rowling. Oh. I kept hearing about this series. They're definitely adult okay. uh, stories. Okay. Yeah, it's an adult so um, detective novel. Yeah. It's pretty gritty. Okay. Um, there's not like anything obscene in it, but there's like hard language kind of you know she'll freely talk about body parts and like all kinds of things right like it's like that kind of what they call like hard-boiled detective novel like you know there was one section I read recently he was like receiving death threats and it was like the full-on swearing in the like reading the letter gotcha Um, gotcha so I would not recommend it probably I don't know I think it's for adults but I'm really enjoying it because she has such a way of drawing you into the scene she's just really amazing at description right so you feel like you're in the story Mm -hmm. just like harry potter in that way and with a lot of detective novels i can kind of see where they're going i'm usually right about like who the killer was this one i'm like i i don't know (laughs) it's really fun (laughs) i'm like i don't know where this is going oh cool (laughs) i don't know who did it Yeah, no, that doesn't happen very often. Well, this is so funny because I didn't bring this book up, but I checked it out and I'm at the, like, I've read the prologue and chapter one, but that's because people keep talking about Mm -hmm. it. And I, I kind of thought, well, where have I been living under a rock? Where are are you hearing about these things? You keep saying people keep talking. (laughs) Apparently I'm not listening. Like various, like I'll scroll Facebook maybe and uh, I'll see some Facebook groups and (laughs) whatnot. And I hadn't really been paying attention to JK Rowling other than the Harry Potter right. books, but the first one came out like 10 years ago or something. When did it come out, Sarah? Yeah, this one. Um, like 2013 or 2014, yeah, somewhere in there. That's right. Wow. So I thought, well, and I like Murder yeah. Mystery and it's, you know, Sherlock Holmes. And then we just read To Say Nothing of the Dog. And there's all these <laughs> references to all these mystery novels. And so I was like, oh, that'd be fun. So I did get it from the library and thought, okay, I'm going to give that a try. But I'm just not in as far as you are. Interesting. Yeah. You're reading the book and I'm listening to the audiobook, right? Oh, yes. I'm reading it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that could be a different experience. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. (laughs) The detective, his name is Cormorant Strike since the series name. Gotcha. Yeah. Interesting. And so, but you're really enjoying it. I am. Yeah. It's it's a good escape. Like a kind of, like I said, draws you into the story. Does it remind you of any other series? Like, could you compare it to Agatha Christie or, you know, something else? It's probably like any of those murder mystery stories, but just like like I said, a little more grittier. Like I don't tend, I haven't really read a whole lot of other ones that are more like this. Mm-hmm. I, it's probably, 
I, I would expect that a lot of the grittier detective stories are not as high quality as this one. Right, exactly. exactly. So in that way, I think it's more like the traditional detective stories, Dorothy Sayers. Sure. Agatha Christie, that kind of thing. So it has the chops of the old stuff, but just has a more modern voice. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. I could very much learn to like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Sarah, I was wondering, like, I had heard that it had language in it, so it has mm-hmm. the swearing in it. But as far as, like, when you say gritty and, like, the graphic descriptions, is it, like, law and order where, yes, yet there's this murder and you get this graphicness of the murder, but then you're kind of in the figuring it out after that like how graphic it's not not violent it's not a graphic of the death it's more of he the detective is this middle-aged guy who like at the beginning of the story separates from the woman he's been living with for years and years and years and talking about their relationship like an adult with no filter would do right. you know like okay as a crass uh, man yes, as a crass no that's a great way to put it okay. it's, it's a bit okay. crass in that way there the characters are likable and like the detective despite his being a bit crass and and all of this is actually like has a sense of honor and you know he has a young woman who's coming into his detective agency as a temp and she like apparently always wanted to be a detective and so you know she tries to stay and work with him and she's incredible like she's really intelligent and like helping him out so well like you can tell they're like they're going to be a pair um, (laughs) right as a detective pair you know but he's just left this relationship and he's very careful she's engaged like he's very careful with her because he doesn't want to like overstep anything Mm -hmm. yeah so there's a lot to like about it cool Oh, and he's ex-military. He has oh. like a prosthesis leg. Oh, yeah. I'm going to need to get these. <laughs> this definitely <laughs> yeah. sounds like my cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd be curious what you think. And you too, Tanya, as you're reading it. All right. So the final book that I read, well, actually, audiobook again. <laughs> How I get most of Yay, friends, audio! Uh, was, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Parnassus on Wheels in anticipation of doing the book club. Yay! So sorry that we had to cancel. So friends, what Sarah's referencing is we had planned to do Parnassus on Wheels as our monthly Plumfield Reads book club this month in December, but the stars are not aligning. And so we've actually moved Parnassus around a number of times and we feel like something here is not clicking totally. So what we're going to do is for now, we're going to put a hold on Parnassus on Wheels because in January, we're going in a different direction. So but we've all read Barnhouses on Wheels in anticipation of our failed book club. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's a short audiobook, I think two and a half hours, and I listen on faster speed, so it wasn't even that long. Uh, and it was fun. Yes. It was enjoyable. <laughs> I actually couldn't really believe that it was written so long ago. Right? It felt more recent. <laughs> what did you like about it? <laughs> I really had no idea what to expect. Like, I really didn't know what this was about at all. For some reason, I thought it was more of like an educational treatise or yes. something. <laughs> and it was a, oh, just a fun casual story <laughs> of a, a woman who doesn't, you know, is tired of her life cooking and <laughs> her brother become this famous author. And she, out on a whim, just like buys a wagon, a wagon, I don't know. <laughs> Tours around with him and then falls in love. Like, <laughs> and she buys it despite her brother, so that her brother won't buy it. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and just the references to all the books yeah. and her expanding her life and her her world. Yeah. I think it was fun. <laughs> yeah. 
We wanted to do it during the holidays because we thought it would be such a brain break for people. It would just be so light and fun. So friends, we do encourage you to go ahead and read it. If we end up doing it for a book club down the road, then you'll already have your reading done. In the meantime, treat yourself. The narration is excellent. It's Nadia May. And it is a little bit of a culture shock if you've listened to her narrate the Hiding Place by Corey Tenboom, <laughs> and then you do Barnasses on Wheels, so don't do those in succession. But um, she's she has such range to her voice, and she's hilarious, and doesn't take herself too seriously, which is perfect for the book. And so it's is really just a wonderful way. If you've got a bunch of Christmas wrapping to do, it would be a wonderful, wonderful companion while you're wrapping gifts or baking or whatever. Yeah. And my mm-hmm. my kids have all read it too. So Jack got it and just was la- he was snorting. He was laughing so hard. And we were traveling <laughs> and he just took it and read it with him along the way and so if my uh 12-year-old is loving it, I think it's <laughs> it's pretty safe for anybody. She's a very likable woman, very down to earth mm-hmm. and just you get a kind of picture of her in your head yes. and, mm-hmm, the man she bought the wagon with who she travels with is also just a fun guy <laughs> yeah. I of course I also read it because I thought we were going to do a book club and I have read it several times but every time so it comes up I have to go read it again because it's been so long mm. and I just I love that time period and and reading books written back then that aren't they're not too serious like i said before mary roberts reinhardt who wrote all of the mystery novels it's the same time period and so i wanted to see if there was anything else some other things of christopher morley and i got a whole bunch of them on my kindle because they're free so that's that's how i do this is and when i bring them up it's like you can't find these books probably in hard copy but they're free on kindle so if you do that, mm-hmm. it's it's really easy to get them. So anyway, I was reading one of them called Kathleen. And it was just, it was my take my Kindle to bed story. <laughs> and uh, didn't realize it was really kind of just a short story. But there are, there's a sort of a literary club at Oxford of some young, youngish men, like the younger, probably freshmen or something. They get together to do whatever they do but one of them finds a letter in the library that's to Kathleen from Joe and they just read it and get fascinated with it and they decided to write a story based on the characters in this letter and they'll each oh, write a fun. story yeah so they they start <laughs> doing this and the, and just getting you know all kinds of weird ideas but they then they go there's enough information in here we could find Kathleen they sort of make a scavenger hunt out of finding her and trying to be the first person to talk to her in person because they have built up in their minds that she's this beautiful person and they're all jealous of Joe because of their relationship, whatever it might be, which is totally made up in their story. But so they all converge on this house of Kathleen and her family and so, and they don't have any idea. The family doesn't have any idea why there's all of a sudden the gas man keeps coming in and needing to be in their basement and their cook called in sick. And this really weird cook has come in to take her place who doesn't really cook. And there's another guy who's pretending to be some kind of a cleric and he seems he's wearing his collar backwards. And 
Um, the guy who's kind of the main character is pretending to be an antiquarian who wants to talk to her dad about the history of the area and stuff like that. So oh. it's really, it's the kind of a story that would probably make me uncomfortable if it were like a sitcom or something, because it's just sort of sure. slapstick and all kinds of nutty things going on. But there's five guys all trying to be the first person to get in the house and talk to Kathleen. And they all have a different way of doing it. And they're crashing into each other and they recognize each other. So the cook is dressed like a woman, but it's really one of the guys. Oh. And he keeps the, the gas man comes in and he has to go down the basement. So the cook locks him in there. And eventually he's got almost everybody all of his challengers locked in the basement. Oh, <laughs> Kathleen's going, what is happening here? And the whole family's just wondering, why is the gas man back? <laughs> anyway, wow. this is just the kind of thing. So if you've read Parnassus on wheels and there's the humor in it, it's a little bit, this is a little bit beyond that, but it was really just clever. And, and it was a mm -hmm. fun, relaxing kind of read. Like, this, it doesn't right. matter what happens here. There's, I don't, I don't care who gets the girl, and it's not right. really about that. It's just fun. <laughs> <laughs> but I do have yes, questions, <laughs> though, because I think it sounds really fun. Like, okay, because you've got these, like in my head, I'm imagining early 20th century. You've got these kids from college, like they're very dapper, 1910s, 1920s, mm -hmm. somewhere right in yes. there, right? And then now they've created this this woman in their head they've they've written up this story about this woman based on this letter they've built her up in their minds and now they're on this wild goose chase to see who can find her first <laughs> and is she a beautiful young woman how much do you want me to can tell we have you spoilers? how much how do you want me? <laughs> i don't know i kind of want to know okay, okay. diane will put the spoilers in the show notes <laughs> okay <laughs> this is like what you would go to the yes. theater to see yes. like to me this, this is, is like, like sheer madness or something and I would love it if it was in black and white too. Yeah, they should make it. Yeah. They should oh, make yeah. it now. It's in black and white yeah. in my head. Oh my gosh, yeah, it could be an. It could be a Nickelodeon. Mm -hmm. It could be black and white with just the words. You know, no, no talking. <laughs> that would be. That would be hilarious. <laughs> Might as well be really because it's not really about the talking either. But there's there's a couple of <laughs> twists because of course they they got the letter. They know the names of a couple of people, or think they do. And so they may build up this whole story on it. And then it turns out that they're wrong about almost all the characters. <laughs> so maybe I'll just say that. So, it, which is funny as they each, they each come to realize that they're talking to the family about somebody that they think is this person. And the family's going, what are you talking about? Who, mm -hmm. how is that even possible? So then of course they have to cover for it. <laughs> I think I'm just finding this super fun and hysterical coming off of to see right, nothing of the exactly. Dog. Same vein. <laughs> because it just feels like it should come next. Oh, sure. Okay. <laughs> it's very short. <laughs> like a little bit of shenanigans. Yeah. Well, like it's just the shenanigans of that time period kind of. I mean, that I was kind of like 1880s, 1890s. Right. The four of us should not be allowed to talk to anyone else about books because our reading list just from each other is enormous. <laughs> <laughs> right? I'm going to read this Me one, too. I think. <laughs> oh, then you'll hate it and I'll feel terrible. Oh, Diane, we don't typically hate <laughs> I don't the books think that so. you recommend. Other mm. people might, but <laughs> good company here. <laughs> so what else are you reading, Diane? Well, this has been an interesting month for me. I was looking back at my calendar and going, that was just at the beginning of this month that we did all that. 
So there was just, there's been a lot of traveling, just not being home, not doing normal things. Mm So um, I was thinking about today. You had a new grandbaby this month. Yes, we did. (laughs) So yes, we went to visit my son whose wife was Mm -hmm. getting ready to have a baby, but she didn't have it while we were there. She waited till about three days later. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> yes, our our tenth grandchild was born, and um, just lots of stuff going on. So my point being, I was looking at today and going, "I, what have I read? Mm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Lots of things and nothing. <laughs> I, have You've I finished book anything? reviews? So you're reading things for sure. <laughs> yes, picture book reviews and working on projects and things like that. So what do I have that could be fun to talk about? And so there was that one, that's Kathleen by Christopher Morley. And then um, that led me to another Mary Roberts Reinhardt murder mystery called The Big Mistake. Mm -hmm. And I just think she's always fun. So I like to go back. I don't know what it is. There's something about the 1910s, 1920s, the murder mysteries. And Mm -hmm. there's, I don't know, there's a feeling of that era where I just like to go away. Yay. And so that's what I do on on my Kindle. I think it's interesting that you and Sarah are 100 years apart because you're reading the 1910, 1920s murder mysteries and she's Mm -hmm. reading the 2010, (laughs) 2020s murder mysteries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Well, one thing that's interesting to me about that is that Mary Roberts Reinhardt was considered like, I was going to say, like the American Agatha Christie, except she was actually first. So Agatha oh. Christie got the big name and she's more well known and Mary Roberts Reinhardt kind of slid out of people knowing her. But she started right. a lot of the things. Like we mm-hmm. like I talked about last time, the butler did it and the had mm-hmm. she but known. And this had one is very known. much had <laughs> she but known. If only they had known that this person was thinking that or that they weren't thinking anything. They might not have had to kill them or, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> still reminding me of to say nothing of the dog though (laughs) yeah what you're saying because they would say like how the those early authors would first do this thing and then the audience would catch on Mm -hmm. and they do this next Mm -hmm. thing so it's just it's fun to think back on those those real classics and i don't think i've ever read anything from this particular author yeah me either you're talking and they're hard to get in in a hard copy i don't i think Mm -hmm. i've read everything i've read Mm -hmm. of hers on my kindle I'm going to have to try that too because I love Agatha Christie, but I don't, in all honesty, I don't even know if I've heard of this other person. Which is so sad. So I'm fascinated Mm. too. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Exactly. So I'm kind of excited that now I'm, I'm, I'm more educated than I was three minutes ago (laughs) and I can look this up because I think there's nothing like when I think about even TV shows that I like to watch, I just don't want a stupid comedy. I don't want over dramatized drama. I really like, I do. I've really liked murder mysteries or crime. Because they're intelligent. They're thoughtful. Yeah, they're intelligent. Well, and they also speak to a lot of the issues that humanity mm-hmm. has. They do. Yep. And and a lot of times they're humorous. They're all, this, they're all the things. And we still, our modern day TV still plays off of the brilliance of these early um, mystery writers. So thank you, Diane. Oh, sure. One of the other things about her, she wrote one of her books was called The Bat, and the bat in her story is a bad guy, but they say that Batman was probably based off of this character, that that gave the, the oh. Batman creator the idea. Interesting. And I'm reading another one, huh. 
by her that's called The Strange Interlude. But it's about a young woman, in an American woman, who in the early years of World War I, before America's in it, decides that she is going to go help these people somehow. And she just does it. She gets wow. her church to get, send her some support money, and she leaves her fiancé and goes over to Belgium. And she's working right behind the lines on the Ypres salient. So wow. why that's fascinating to me, besides just being that era, is that Mary Roberts Reinhardt actually went to Belgium as a war correspondent. I think she was the first woman to ever do that. For the, She did it for the Saturday Evening Post. Wow. Well, and what I think is so interesting about these stories from this time one of the things that literature from that time really did a good job of was mastering the vignette. Um, I think about when when I was a kid growing up, I, I had to walk home about a mile to and from school each day. And so I, I and I was very often, you know, I live in northern Wisconsin. So, so it was uphill. Up, yeah, it was uphill both ways. <laughs> 12 feet of snow. Um, but it was very often dark. By the time I was going mm -hmm. home from school, if I had any after school activity at all, you know, this it's very dark here and cold. And so people would have their lights on. And when mm -hmm. I was walking home from school, I was always looking in windows. I wasn't trying to be, you know, rude. I was curious about people's lives. I was curious about the stories happening within and when I really, I don't know if that was because of the books that I was reading, that they just sort of fostered that in me, or if that nature is why I liked the books I was reading. But I feel like in that time period, and I think Murder Mysteries as well, they invite you into homes and you get to see the vignette that other people don't get to see, especially with Murder Mysteries, right? You get to see what's in the closet kind of thing. And so I just love those old books versus more of the hard-boiled murder mysteries like Sarah was talking about. Like, I loved Robin Cook's books, but they are. They're harsher and they're more action-oriented and they're more, happen more of in a morgue kind of a thing versus these that were always in somebody's drawing room or something. <laughs> well, I, I wasn't really prepared for this. I have a notebook where I keep all my research on the old murder mysteries because some of the very earliest ones after Edgar Allan Poe were women. Mm -hmm. And I just find that so interesting that my, and my point though, is that in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, women were writing murder mysteries and that was not normal that, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> wasn't really acceptable, <laughs> but they were using their own names. I mean, female names when people there have been a couple different people who have written about now here are the rules for a murder mystery and one of the reasons that these are so often set like in country houses is because you the way we think about that is here's a normal life peaceful nothing mm -hmm. can come in and mm -hmm. do anything to these people in this nice little private place and something right. does and very right. often it's from within it's not somebody right. coming in from the outside. It's some kind of, you know, it's the snake in the garden kind of thing. And that's what yeah. makes the story. So all of those, they're just all various twists on that kind of a theme of here's a nice, peaceful country house. And there's somebody waiting to kill someone. Somebody hates mm. so much for some reason that no one suspects that they just have to do away with them or whatever it is that happens. And that's what makes them so effective. Yeah, I think that's where this book, the one that I was talking about, Cuckoo's Calling, falls right into that tradition because it's about a famous woman who dies. She's like a beautiful, famous actress who everybody loves. 
So again, like you think she would be almost untouchable. She lives in like a, you know, place with security and all of this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And she falls to her death and it's everybody assumes and decides like all the investigations decide it's a suicide. And this detective is hired to by the brother to prove that it was murder. He thinks it's murder. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. That's such a modern twist. Um, (laughs) Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's a modern twist on it Mm -hmm. for sure. I love that. (laughs) Um, Yuna has a book that she would like to share. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) Yay! You want to share it, Yuna? She got this from Tanya when she was a baby. That's why she brought it over because Tanya was here. (laughs) Town mouse, country mouse. We've been reading it lately. (laughs) Yay! You like this book, Yuna? Yeah, Tanya also gave you a blanket when you were a baby. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A blanket and a book. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love you, Yuna. (laughs) Hey, really quickly, though, this is for the two Sarahs. Just so you know, there are quite a few Mary Roberts Reinhardt books on Audible. Woohoo! As yes. So maybe Diane can tell us where to start. But also Kathleen by Christopher Morley is on Audible. Oh. <laughs> so and it's discounted with the membership. So just saying if anybody wants to listen to that one, it is available. And it's short, like she said, on Audible it is an hour and fifty seven minutes. And like Sarah, if you listen at double speed, that's only I, an hour. I'm sorry, I listen so. at one point seven five, not quite double. Well, what do you listen, Sarah Kim, at like 1.75? Usually 1.5. Depends on the oh, narrator. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, likewise. There are some so. narrators. I'll go down to 1.25, but pretty rare. So, Diane, there's actually a lot on Audible. So maybe you could, since you've read quite a few, maybe you could tell us where should we start? The door. The door? Yeah. That's the one where the butler did it. That's the name of the book? What? Well, I told you that last time. Well, I forgot. Okay, well, sorry. <laughs> Try to erase it from your memory before you read it. Don't, don't worry. I'll forget <laughs> by the next time. Yes. Okay, so one more thing, though. In, in my, I have this notebook that's my murder mystery research book. But in the very beginning, from an, a website called the Thrilling Detective website. No, 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 no. Yes, Hold she does on. have a three-ring binder. What, 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 is, what is this notebook? Show it. Pick it up. Detective novel history. Okay. Detective novel history. How long have you had this book for? Oh, several years. Be Like potato peel pie before even. No. I have questions, <laughs> but go on. <laughs> the, the real question is, how many notebooks like it does she have? Yeah, like what other notebooks are there and how much stuff is in this notebook? Uh, yeah, look at it. It's like a one and a half or two inch binder. Yeah, look at that. See? See? Yeah. We got to have a retreat in Wyoming this year. <laughs> Rifle through her notebook. I keep telling you that. I don't have any binders. No? So now I'm thinking. Maybe that's because you're young and you have a better no. memory. No, I have a database. Oh, well, that could yeah. help too. She yeah. does this have is a database. database. This is the old people database. That was like the best comeback ever. <laughs> Did you hear what Diane said? This is the old people's database. <laughs> okay, well, I'm ready for the reference from the... Okay. Yeah, so this is called The 20 Rules for Writing Detective Stories. And so number one is, the reader must have equal opportunity with the detective for solving the mystery. All clues must be plainly stated and described. Okay, wait, what's the source of that list? Yeah. 
are you the source or was there an no 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 it's, it's from the thrilling detective website and it's um ss <laughs> van dyne <laughs> I, re- I remember um i think it was dorothy sayers at least who was talking about that as well which is interesting because she breaks one of the major ones one of them says <laughs> <laughs> a crime in a detective oh, clearly she was aware of the rule uh, yes <laughs> right because yeah. didn't she write with that group that like chesterton and agatha christie yep. they all wrote together the floating admiral mm-hmm. the yeah. floating admiral where they each wrote a chapter it was so yeah. convoluted and unreadable <laughs> they wrote they did it all the time yeah but one of the rules is a crime in a detective story must never turn out to be an accident or a suicide dorothy sayers did that at least twice oh. broke that rule I'm not going to say which huh. stories. Interesting. Yeah, don't but, don't spoil. <laughs> yeah. The motive for all crimes in detective stories should be personal. International plottings and war politics belong in a different category of fiction. Well, Ooh. okay then. <laughs> Servants such as butlers, footmen, valets, gamekeepers, cooks, and the like must not be chosen by the author as the culprit. This is a beg is begging a noble question. It is t- a too easy solution. <laughs> It is unsatisfactory and makes the reader feel that his time has been wasted. Except lots of them have it be the butler, don't they? A lot of them have the butler did it. Well, they did for a while, yeah. Do they this not? is later. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Okay. Well, usually you need a very personal reason. And this became a thing. This became a very cultural thing. I mean, there was an entire culture that grew up around the writing of murder mystery novels. I mean, clubs that highly exclusive clubs and shared work. And, you know, it was this is a very cool thing. And then it just sort of disappeared for a while. Well, probably because we went to television and we had Murder, She Wrote. (laughs) Oh, I did like Murder, She Wrote. I did, too. (laughs) Okay, so good. (laughs) All right, Diane, what else have you been reading? Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this was super fun. (laughs) The other one of the big things is that I'm reading Ben Hur with my class, and so yes. I'm in that, but just at the beginning. I'm not. I'm not Yay. pushing them too hard. So <laughs> partly because I don't want to push myself too hard, but we're going to take quite a, quite a while to read it. So I think I'm we'll looking be done forward in January. I'm looking forward to starting it. So just as you're yeah. getting done, I'm going to be starting it with my yeah. club. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at least it'll be sort of fresh in my mind. And if all goes well, it'll be a Plumfield Reads book club our next spring. Yeah. Yay. Yes. Yay. I'm hoping for that. And I'm hoping I don't have to read it again. <laughs> that I take really good notes and remember. <laughs> I think you should be fine. <laughs> okay. I hope so. <laughs> I've never read it. <gasps> I haven't either. No. Really? I've only read an abridged version that I read to Quanio oh. a while ago. It was really good. Right. But well, I've never read the original. Audible is really excellent for Ben Hur, mm. just so you know. No good. So you'll be happy, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ben Hur is so good. Yeah, we have to do it. Yeah, I was reading it every year during Lent for a while there because it's just that good. Once you've read it, you're like, okay, this is amazing. But you have to understand that the beginning feels really, really bizarre. Not quite to say nothing of the dog bizarre, but kind of bizarre until you realize those are the three kings and they're finding their way to Bethlehem. Once that like gels in your brain, you're like, oh, got it. We're going to the nativity. Okay. As soon as it does, you're done with that. Right. Then it's like, oh, poof, that part's over. (laughs) But it does make sense since it's a tale of the Christ. He has to actually be born. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, now we have to do it because neither Tanya nor Sarah has read it. It's our moral obligation. 
to it really do it. is. So yes. there we go. <laughs> 100%. One of the things that I was reminded of as I was doing research for my students was that this book was the beginning of certain groups of people where a lot of times Christians didn't read fiction because it's not true. Right. Right. And it's probably evil because it's made up. This was one of the mm -hmm. first books where those people started reading novels because of the subject matter mm -hmm. and because of the way it was written. It it was acceptable and people would read and go, Oh, Oh, you, I know, I know it's fiction, but you have to read this. And it just mm -hmm. started that acceptability of reading fiction. And there are rules around that too. So as we're talking about, like with the murder mysteries with Ben-Hur, there are no words that Christ speaks in the book that aren't from scripture. And so that's one of the rules is that if you're going to write a story about Christ, it'll be completely unacceptable to entire people groups if Christ assumes or deviates in any in any way, shape, or form. And so Christ must remain purely perfect to what is represented in Scripture. And that's Ben-Hur adheres to that rule, that Christ and, and those characters who are found in the Bible are represented accurately. Everybody else is fictionalized. Interesting. Oh, I'm excited. Yeah, no one else had ever done that before. So mm -hmm. he, he got to make yeah. the rules, I guess. Yeah, but it's what made it acceptable mm -hmm. when it could have easily been rejected mm -hmm. as it as stories like it become later on. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, it's so exciting. good. <laughs> I wish I was starting it now. Mm -hmm. You should start it in Advent. Like if you could read Ben-Hur on the perfect schedule, in my opinion, you would start and you would read the first book, which is the wise men part. You would read that in Advent and you'd stop and you would take a break and you'd restart in Lent and you would make sure that you hit Palm Sunday on Palm Sunday. Because if you hit Palm Sunday on Palm Sunday, <laughs> Holy Week is going to be amazing. Just saying. I, I don't disagree with you, but <laughs> I, know, I had but it never to make it work. That way. It had to, I, I had to make it work for my class. So we have a Christmas break and then I have to be gone all of February. And so I was just trying well, to get I can't it in even there. get my own book club to do it that way. So <laughs> I'm just saying yeah, there is an ideal schedule out there. I love to read things liturgically. And so I think if you can time it, it's really amazing. Although there's a lot of fruit though to go into Christmas season with his death and resurrection firmly in your mind, you know? So mm -hmm. there's a lot of, I mean, there's never a bad season to read about Christ. So Right. And to have his death and resurrection firmly in your mind. Amen. <laughs> yes. Well, can I go back to the not Christ-like things that we're reading? <laughs> yes, I guess so. So I am not reading murder mysteries right now, but I am. Aww. Thanks. I know, I know. Um, I've been, as always, I've done a ton of reading this month. That That's just who I am. Tanya will be very happy to know that I read The Trumpeter of Krakow, and I've got a review on it. It was great. It really was lovely. And Yay. in our review, I link to a YouTube video, and there's a lot of them out there, but this one's my favorite, of The Trumpeter today playing this, the, I, I can't say the name of the song piece. I'll get it wrong. I can't either. And it's really interesting to see how he moves from the different windows in the tower. And it's just the ceremony, the lit the liturgy of it is really cool. So that video is in the review and uh, adds a little more depth and meaning, I think, to the story when you see that. 
And then the other thing I read this month that somebody had asked me to read was that Sherry Early asked me to read The Silver Sword by Ian Servalier, which I did not realize until today that the I have a Beowulf um, that from Bethlehem Books that was translated by him. So I'm like, oh, that's why that name was familiar to me. I haven't read that one, but now mm-hmm. I'm curious. Sherry's not wrong. That is an excellent World War II story. So, so, so good. Totally and completely recommend that one. Um, so our review for that is on our website too. When I when I saw that, I was like, oh man, now I'm going to want Quanu to read that one first free read next term. And I'm going to have to cut back on <laughs> well, the I don't know what to do. The audible's really great, <laughs> and it's not long. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, and Sarah and I both own it, right? Yeah, we both own it, and we've heard it's been good for years. We just haven't gotten around to. I haven't read it yet, Sarah. You haven't read it yet, right? Oh, it was it, yeah. it was the perfect follow up to a place to hang the moon. So, thank you, Sarah, for talking about a place to hang oh. the moon last month because it kind of kicked me in the tush, and oh gosh other than the rats um the one scene with the rats which is so hard that book was tanya was right she said it was going to be for me just like this perfect little warm hug that i needed and it it totally was i mean it was really lovely but then i felt like the silver sword felt like a rift i mean it is very different but it is a troop of children who are siblings and it's them against the world in dire circumstances and it's just so well done. <laughs> so um, I foresee us wanting to do something with that book in the future because it's it's a gem not to be missed. So then as mm-hmm. a brain break, because we were loving to say nothing to the dog so much and because because we were, Diane and I were planning out Plumfield Reads book clubs for the year and we're going to do Blackout and All Clear next summer. I just felt like I needed a little more Connie Willis. And so I was thinking about, do I really want to try Roswell that Christy was talking about? I mean, I don't like aliens and I haven't seen any of the, I have not seen very many alien movies and I'm good with that. Um, but then Christy's <laughs> like, Sarah, you just need to know about this. <laughs> it's included for free in the Audible membership, but it's Connie Willis's Christmas book. And it's called A Lot Like Christmas. Now here's the deal. You don't even like Christmas books. I know, and neither does she. (laughs) (laughs) I would tell you that everybody should, if you have an Audible membership, go listen to her introduction. It, in and of itself, is worth the price of admission. Well, okay, it's free. But um, it makes me want to go and get the book simply for that. Because she really deconstructs what a Christmas story is, why it is, what it should be. You know, again, the rules... And then she sets out to tell Christmas stories that fit inside what she thinks the rules of Christmas stories should be. But they're oh, not wow. pedantic and they're not predictable and they are not uh, saccharine sweet. They are aliens, robots. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a robot who wants to be a rocket. It's a weird thing and it works. I found myself just lost in these stories. I can't believe, I think it's like 22 hours. And at 11 hours in, I thought I was only three hours in because it was that enjoyable. Such a wonderful romp. Now, there is one story, the short story in the middle that I thought was horrifically bad. is about a depressed guy who has got, gets saddled with his girlfriend's son 
and at a toy store and he gets trapped in a toy store and it's like i don't know it was bizarre it was super short i'm like okay that i would just cut that out if i could um but other than that it is just i mean the one of the stories is about joseph and mary who timey wimey get lost on their way to bethlehem and end up <laughs> in a modern american city and they have to find their way back to bethlehem in time i mean it sounds so hokey and that's exactly what she wants you to think. She wants you to think it's going to be hokey. And then she wants to flip that on its head and do something really fun with it. And Christmassy. What's it called again? The book itself is kind of pricey. But the Audible is free. A Lot Like Christmas. And it is a collection of short stories. And as Christy and I were saying to each other, neither of us like Christmas stories and neither of us are huge fans of short stories. But we both love this book. And I think it's because the short stories are longer than your average short story. So they're long enough to be interesting, but short enough to resolve. So you feel like you can really kind of in two nights read the whole thing and then move on to the next story the next night. I'm kind of a little speechless. <laughs> <laughs> now, well, I should say, like I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm listening and I'm thinking, I really like Sarah. And I, I generally like her book recommendations. And she's sounding super excited. And the tone is right. But the content sounds bizarre. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And I'm trying to reconcile that with I Christmas okay. and aliens so and robots and rockets. The first short story is a couple of shop girls. And they it's Christmas Eve. And they're trying to get to the company Christmas party. And they've got all the normal modern shop girl things. It's the shop girl trope. And it's about <laughs> the girl, the girl opens, she, she comes home from work. She's going home to change before she goes to go somewhere else. And there's a guy knocking on her door in her apartment. And she opens the door and it's this guy who's kind of a surfer dude. And she's thinking, what the heck? He's kind of creepy. And he says, hey, I'm here for your Christmas present. And she's like, no, I don't. I don't need anything. Thanks. I'm not buying anything. No, no, no. It's paid for. Like, this is your Christmas present. Oh, I should back up because we find out in the beginning that she's got a sister who's like into all the weird stuff. So she she's like, nope, thanks anyway. And he's like, no, I, I can't leave until you get your Christmas present. And she's like, I'm so worried right, right now. So I'm, I'm like, this is weird. <laughs> like, is this going to be like a murder mystery? So she closes her door, locks it and chains it. Goes into her bedroom, gets what she needs, comes back out, and the guy is sitting on her couch. And she's like, what? How did he get into my house? He's a spirit. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, like, freaked out. And then I'm like, this is, and I'm reading it at 1 a.m. I'm like, no way. I put it away. Next day, I'm like, I don't know. Is this going to be okay? It's actually comedic. And it's funny. And his job is to give her her heart's desire. But he's very opinionated. <laughs> and... <laughs> whatever it is that she thinks she wants he's pretty sure that's not what she wants and so he is just working his little magic everything she does he kind of undoes it in a way so that she's forced into finding the right guy and making the right choice and having a happy christmas <laughs> and by the way she gets engaged you know like it's silly silly, <laughs> silly stuff like that i'm trying to think of the one from last night that does it is fun. so fun it, if you loved mm -hmm. to say nothing to the dog and you're willing to read a modern thing by her, it it it, it fires in the, on the same cylinders because what she's doing is she's drawing you into story and she's going to tell you this incredibly compelling story because she knows how to 
introduce you to characters that matter. So like the mm-hmm. one of them opens up with, you know, alien stories always are either one of two things. They're either E.T. or Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And neither of those are right. And we know that because of the Aliri. You're like, oh, she's telling an alien story about Aliri, whoever they are. It's just so clever how she does it. And it doesn't feel mm-hmm. like science fiction. It just feels like storytelling. Interesting. So, and her rule is that a Christmas story should end well. And it and it should be... Um, the spirit of Christmas should be conveyed in whatever it is. And so you end up liking the characters when it's all said and done. And mm-hmm. it's a happy Christmas at the end of every, ep- at the end of every episode. <laughs> so there you go. I'm going to try it. <laughs> yeah. At least that yeah. first one. <laughs> I'll be very interested if you don't like the shop girl one. <laughs> yeah. So fascinating. So then I have something completely different to talk about today. We are really good here about talking about books for children or books that we're reading just for our own enjoyment. Um, But one of the things we don't really do is do a lot of academic book talk. And not because we don't read it. I think all of us are actually still reading that kind of stuff. It just isn't necessarily the thing that we come and, and talk about here. But I have an academic book I have to talk about, and I'm excited about it because, and it's not something I would ever have read on my own, but I am assured by the author that this is something I will love because <laughs> the author is my brother. And so I am reading my brother's book. My brother is a professor of economics and he has written a book called England's Cross of Gold. And it is about the gold standard and about people and how economy relates to people and the mechanisms by which we regulate that and um, kind of keep all of that true. And so I'm just so excited. He sent me a copy of his book and I, and he said there are a couple of chapters that are just very, very human in nature and that would be really, really encouraging. So I'm going to read it and then I'm going to have my son, Michael, read it as well because Michael loves that kind of stuff. I haven't really gotten into it yet, so I'll report back. So my point in mentioning it is, yes, I'm bragging on my brother, but I don't know that there's going to be a bunch of people that are going to run out and want to buy this book. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's important that sometimes we read things that stretch us and that are outside of our comfort zone. And I think mother culture is a very important part of our reading diet. And it's something of late I have been neglecting. We've been doing so many creative projects that when it comes to my morning basket, I've kind of been ignoring it. And so I'm delighted to have something that is the kind of invitation I cannot refuse to kind of get my brain to bend that way again and flex some of my good heavy-duty reading muscles. I'll be excited to hear about that when you finish it up and also what Michael Yay. thinks of it. I think economics is a hard mm-hmm. topic for a lot of people. This sounds like an interesting aspect that he's bringing to the forefront. I think so. He's a He's a very interesting yeah. guy. So <laughs> yeah. it's um I can guarantee the book will not be dry and that it won't be very mechanical or super super heady. It is very intelligently written, of course. Yeah. But it is it's human and approachable. You're saying it's approachable by your by a novice. Yes. <laughs> so we'll see. Yeah. By us regular us folk. People, yeah. <laughs> by those of us who didn't go to Ivy League schools, we can still read it too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But is it available on it Amazon is. or here in it the US? It is available in the US on oh. Amazon. 
from the dust jacket. It says, in England's cross of gold, James Ashley Morrison challenges the conventional view that the UK's ruinous return to gold in 1925 was inevitable. Instead, he offers a new perspective on the struggles among elites in London to define and redefine the gold standard. From the first discussions during the Great War, through the titanic ideological clash between Winston Churchill and John Maynard Keynes, to the final ill-fated implementation of the new gold standard. Now, what's interesting is about two years ago, Diane and I had a long conversation with John Tepper Marlin, who is the son of Hilda von Stockholm. Hilda's husband was an economist, and he worked for the Secretary of the Treasury here in the United States, and he was part of the Americans' questioning of the gold standard. So it was really interesting because uh, John Tepper Marlin himself is an economist, and so it was interesting talking with him and hearing uh, kind of his ideas and then talking with my brother. And so I mentioned this connection because I think that we tend to think of economics as being something highly scientific, very academic, sort of over there. And yet I think that it is, in fact, something that's uh, very humanistic in nature and is very much about people and society and how they interact with each other and how money makes things work between people. So... I think it, it, I think it's interesting that it's it's not this dry science is what I'm trying to say. It's something that would appeal I think to those of us who like stories because it is about stories. Yeah. Well, and it's it's the history. Like I'm just re- so it is on Amazon. So it's basically saying what happened at the end of World War 1 between Churchill and Keynes. I didn't even know about this. It's so Isn't it? I mean, and all the reading that we here do about World War 1 and World War 2. And this is this is part of the this is part of the issue. Part of all the issues. Yeah, yeah. So my brother is James Ashley Morrison, and he is a professor at the London School of Economics in London, England. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And again, I think it's these pieces that happened in the early 20th century, both in the UK Mm -hmm. and here in the United States, that all these things started happening, both like on the playing field, not just these world wars, but these other policymaking decisions that happened, both in the financial sectors and other sectors, that most of us do not understand, like, Right. I think it's so easy for us to think like income tax, for Mm -hmm. example. We pay income tax. We just think there was never a time when there wasn't income tax. But income tax in the U.S. didn't start until like 1910, 1915, right? Somewhere in there. Before then, there was not income tax. And so we didn't have all this taxation, not only on the money that was coming in, but on the money that was going out. And as I've started to learn about that, it makes me pause and think, okay, like there's pieces that I feel like I'm missing when we look at the big scope of things. And I think most Americans, probably Europeans, we don't understand our history from a financial perspective. And a lot of us get really overwhelmed trying to even learn economics or understand how economics right. works. I mean, I know I do. It feels complicated. It is, I mean, most wars come about because of economics. Economics yeah. is a key contributor yes. to both prosperity mm-hmm. and the opposite, right? So we to not understand economics is at our own peril. And yet we don't. And we mm-hmm. don't give it a lot of focus because it does feel very convoluted. It feels very political and it feels very confusing. It is confusing though. And a lot of things hinged like when you're when we're looking at the world mm-hmm. wars, all of those things that happened after World War 1 were setting the stage for World War 2 to come and it wasn't just no, one thing. No, it wasn't thing. just Hitler coming to power. What did we say in no. our book club at last year about this time when we did the rise and fall of Adolf Hitler? 
How did Hitler come to power? Because the stage was set for him. No one would have elected that Mm -hmm. madman if the stage had not been properly set. Yeah, it was like a perfect Mm -hmm. storm in all these different, in all, like it was swirling all these different things. Because in any other situation, he shouldn't have. Correct. (laughs) He shouldn't have come to power. Yeah. So anyway, this looks really interesting. I look forward to your narration. Why, thank you. (laughs) Next month. (laughs) I think it'll take me a little longer. It's big. Yeah. How long will it take you? How many Uh, pages does this have? Look at this. It's not small. Oh, 402. (laughs) We'll give you two months. There's no audible of this. (laughs) Maybe you could do it. Yeah. James, you want me to record for you? (laughs) That would be cool, actually. (laughs) I don't usually do Christmas books either, but I did get a copy of Smidgen Press's L.M. Montgomery Christmas Collection, selected short stories and poems by Lucy Maud Montgomery, and a lot of the stories are chapters out of the Anne books or the Story Girl that are Christmas mm-hmm. scenes, and then some of the poems. And I'm not a huge poem person, but I was reading this one, and it's the last one in the book, and it's called If Mary Had Known and I would like to try to read it mm. if I can. <laughs> because, Without crying? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. If Mary had known when she held her babe's hand in her own, little hands that were tender and white as a rose, all dented with dimples from finger to wrist, such as mothers have kissed, that one day they must feel the fierce blows of a hatred insane, must redden with holiest stain, and grasp as their geared on the boon of the bitterest pain. Oh, I think that her sweet, brooding face must have blanched with its anguish of knowledge above her embrace. But, if Mary had known, as she held her babe's hand in her own, what a treasure of gifts to the world they would bring, what healing and hope to the hearts that must ache and without him must break, Had she known they would pluck forth death's sting and set open the door of the close, jealous grave evermore, make free who were captives in sorrow and darkness before, oh, I think that a gracious sunrise of rapture had broken across the despair of her eyes. If Mary had known as she sat with her baby alone and guided so gently his bare little feet to take their first steps from the throne of her knee, how weary must be the path that for them should be meet, and how it must lead to the cross of humanity's need— giving hissing and shame, giving blame and reproach for its meed. Oh, I think that her tears would have dewed those dear feet that must walk such a hard, starless way to the rood. But, if Mary had known, as she sat with her baby alone, on what errands of mercy and peace they would go, how those footsteps would ring through the years of all time with an echo sublime, making holy the land of their woe, that the pathway they trod would guide the world back to its God, and lead ever upward away from the grasp of the clod. She had surely forgot to be sad, and only remembered to be immortally glad. If Mary had known, as she held him so closely, her own, cradling his shining fair head on her breast, sunned over with ringlets as bright as the morn, that a garland of thorn on that tender brow would be pressed, till the red drops would fall into eyes that looked out upon all, a brim with a pity divine over clamor and brawl, Oh, I think that her lullaby song would have died on her lips into wailing, impassioned, and long. But, if Mary had known, as she held him so closely, her own, that over the darkness and pain he would be the conqueror hailed in all oncoming days, the world's hope and praise, and the garland of thorn, the symbol of mocking and scorn, would be a victorious diadem royally worn, 
Oh, I think that ineffable joy must have flooded her soul as she bent o'er her wonderful boy. That's beautiful. And so that poem is in a brand new book just released by Smidgen Press. And we'll have the link available in the show notes so that you can go and get it. Diane, what did you think of the presentation of that book? Oh, it's beautiful. Isn't it and gorgeous? the cover, even though it's kind of folk art, quaint, mm-hmm. it's not a picture mm-hmm. or anything, doesn't really prepare you for the illustrations that are going to be inside where they've taken all kinds of old-fashioned paintings, all Christmassy scenes and winter scenes, and maybe some old postcards and, and Christmas mm-hmm. cards and things. It's just, it's pretty stunning. It is. And I love the cover. I, I think the cover, it just welcomes you in and... and to me, when I see the cover, it gives me this sense of Christmas peace. Mm-hmm. And then you open it and like you say, you wow, when you look at the incredible art inside, all in full mm-hmm. color. Stunning. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get all the little Anne Christmas stories. Yeah. On, Who know, doesn't amongst want that? other things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ladies, Sarah and Tanya, thank you so much for talking to us about books today. I love that you never thank me for being here, Diane. Just saying. You don't have any choice. (laughs) That's true. That's true. (laughs) Ladies, this is always fun. We always say that. We're a broken record. I don't care. It's true. (laughs) True is true. Mm -hmm. I love the diversity in our reading and yet the overlap. And I love how the Holy Spirit has us reading different books sometimes that then connect with the other ones. And so it's really a fun time each month to figure out who's reading what, and then who's going to go and follow up and read something that the other recommended. So thank you so much for the gift of your time and yourselves. This is such a wonderful, wonderful thing that we get to do together. And I want to thank all of the people who tune in and listen. It's such a gift to us that you are listening in. And uh, we're finding more and more of you over in the BiblioGuides online community. And we'd love to connect with you, too, if you're not already there. So you can find the link to that in the show notes. It's a Mighty Network. It's totally free. And it's one of the places we're trying to hang out. Also, we talked about a lot of stuff today. And as always, there will be robust show notes with links to everything. So head over to our website to check out those show notes. Thanks so very much for listening. And remember, there's no book club this month, but we'll be back in January with The Princess and the Goblin by George MacDonald. So, until next time, friends. 